Hello there, and welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I can't believe that this is number seven in the series. But you can get a hold of any back numbers at uh, socialworldpodcast.com, or you can tweet us at Dave Niven. Now, this episode is, as always, sponsored by David Niven Associates, and effectively today we're going to be talking about parenting. We're going to have an interview with Jane Evans, who uh, specializes in early years parenting, and we're going to just generally have a look at a few issues that have arisen for me over the years when it comes to parents, parenting attitudes, and sometimes the assumptions that parents make. Okay, I'm really pleased today to welcome Jane Evans. Now, Jane is going to talk today about all sorts of issues about early childhood, and I'm really delighted that she's able to join us today because we're going to also combine, and towards the end of March in the Bristol area, we're going to put a joint conference on, and I think that'll be some of the things we talk about today. So anyway, so a very warm welcome to you, Jane. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you today. Okay, now, you, uh, a couple of weeks ago, were up at the House of Commons, weren't you, for the all-party parliamentary group for conception to age two, the first 1,001 days, chaired by Tessa Jowell and a couple of people from, uh, well, senior advisors from UNICEF came along as well. Um, I believe it was a fantastic experience. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? It was indeed. It was... um I was very, very pleased to be a part of such an important push towards getting early childhood to the top of the agenda in the UK, but also globally. The idea behind it is that post-2015, when the UN set their new agenda, that early childhood would be very much at the centre of that. Right. Are you going to, I mean, you've worked in and around early years most of your career, haven't you? Yes, I have been. I've been very fortunate to work in a range of settings and services that have very much focused on the early childhood experience and supporting children and their parents and carers to have the kind of relationships and futures for their children that they all want. So you've got two, if you like, at the moment, I mean, you've got many sides to to your experience, but two specific things as far as I can understand at the moment. One is your work. Because you 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 actually are an advisor, you 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 work with people um, um, to do with parenting, but at the same time you've got an agenda, haven't you, in terms of raising awareness of childhood experiences and the traumas that affect uh, children, um, especially in the early years. So you've got that double side to to you at the moment. Is that fair? Um, yeah, that would be fair to say that I'm massively interested in and supportive of and have a strong knowledge base around how we support parenting, particularly parenting that's been affected by trauma such as domestic abuse, substance misuse, um, and how often post the abuse, you know, once things are settled down a bit, the kind of parenting support that we're offering doesn't fully meet the needs of the parents or their children. And, um, you know, with the exciting focus that there is now, much more so on early years, we know that we can be doing a lot better to support the early childhood experience um, because of what we know in neuroscience now and 
how much everything relates back to early childhood attachment. So for me, it's a bit like we know better now, so we need to do better. We need to use this. Okay, well, we'll come on in a minute to how you will advise adults, you talk to adults. But, I mean, I, I think I've got to say at this point, you've got a book coming out, haven't you, in February um, um, for age two to six-year-olds who've lived with violence in their home. And, and it, it's a terrific idea, if I might say so. And I think there, there's not much I know is around on the market, and that is a real gap filler, if I might say so. Do you want to just say a little bit about this book that's coming out? Um, yes, thank you, David. I would love to. It's uh, very close to my heart that when I was a domestic violence parenting worker for nearly three years in South Gloucestershire and Bristol, I could never find a book to offer to parents, carers or even professionals which would help them to begin the process with very young children of exploring the feelings that they had when they were lying upstairs listening to the sounds of domestic violence in their home or glimpsing it through a crack in the door. And they knew that the children needed some support to begin to just think about what those feelings were. But it's a very scary topic for adults to talk about, let alone to try and talk about with young children. So when I got the opportunity, I thought, well, I, I will write that book. Um, and I've done it with what I hope is quite a charming, gentle story about a very difficult topic. Um, it's done in a very gentle way, but it also has um, a little guide at the back to enable and empower people to feel that they can use the book in the right way with with children yeah it's a fine line isn't it i imagine you've had to be particularly careful and particularly sensitive but from what i can gather you put a lot of work into this and so even though it's um you know it, it might come across as a relatively straightforward um not simple book but but you know easy to read easy to access book it, it's taken quite a bit of um care to write hasn't it Yes, it's, it's, I think sometimes simple is the hardest thing to do, isn't it? And I try everything that I do, I try to do very much through the eyes of a child and using all my 20 odd years of experience and knowledge to think what actually does a young child need and how can we make it um, as unfrightening for them and how can we build their ability to begin to express their feelings because that's what I find when I work with older children and actually parents very often where there is domestic abuse and domestic violence is that they don't have the ability even much older children and parents to put their feelings into words so if we can begin that process with very very young children then we're mitigating against uh, mental health problems, um, social skills problems, all, all the things that, you know, we all struggle with, with older children and, and with adults. It has a strong logic, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, if you're talking about situations where children have um, experienced house experience in, in households of domestic violence, uh, I mean, traumatic events have a profound sensory impact on young children and and from then on, I mean, they, they, their safety, their sense of safety could easily be shattered by all sorts of uh, frightening stimuli, loud noises, violent movements and other things. And it can, it can occur in all sorts of nightmares, can occur in all sorts of traumatic events can actually disrupt, disrupt and uh, make, a, make their childhood severely dysfunctional, can't it? 
Indeed, and you know, there's there's the quote that uh, is is very commonly used. I think it came from Women's Aid of seven hundred and fifty thousand children in the UK a year are known, and I would heavily underline known because there's many who are not known to witness domestic violence, and they witness it exactly as you say through every every one of their senses, and it. You know, especially in young children, it stays as a memory in them and they may not never have the words unless we enable them to to set those memories free in a way and and make them manageable and containable. And if we do nothing else, that that needs to be our mission, you know, to just gently enable children and, and parents to not feel so powerless. You know, they know what the children have lived through. And then if you don't even know how to support your own child, that's a terrible legacy. No, absolutely. But and, and I mean, I've read, obviously, and I think it's, again, logical, but a two-year-old who witnesses a traumatic event, for example, like their mother being a victim of domestic violence, it completely internalizes it differently and interprets it quite differently to the way a five-year-old or an 11-year-old might do so. And therefore, the way that they, can, they, they can't express it in words when they feel so afraid or overwhelmed in some ways. And so there has to be other mechanisms. There has to be other facilities to to allow them to kind of um to to ultimately i suppose exorcise the, the, this fear yes i i think i think there's a lot in that um my experience has always been that when domestic abuse and domestic violence is taking place what definitely doesn't happen is no one in just in daily life no one is talking about feelings with children who grow up with it you know adults are very distracted and um and this isn't just peculiar to domestic violence you know in fact we're less and less are we having those emotion based conversations with children nowadays so they don't then build in the ability it's it's not natural to talk about how you feel about things so if a child is exposed to repetitive trauma because, you know, one-off events children can recover from relatively well, it's the repetitive nature, then um, without the ability to find the words at some point to say, I felt scared, I felt sad, you know, children end up getting told they're angry post-domestic violence. Yeah. That's the one thing, they, they get told that over and over again um, by sometimes even professionals or oh, they're a very angry child they're a very and so it, that in itself is very limiting and I'm all about let's give the children lots and lots of words to describe how they feel because we never feel just one emotion mm. okay well look let's let's talk for a minute or two we've got a few more minutes just but let's talk for a minute or two then about the the, the adults involved in this and how they can talk to the children but maybe before even that about you're obviously talking about severely disrupted families and very difficult situations sometimes where you're going to try and have to engage adults that have effectively been in the center of the storm themselves. Um, and, and how you actually would advise professionals to advise them in terms of being able to talk with the children in the best possible way to try and deconstruct things and to try and actually normalize life again, if you could call it that. You know, that's a very difficult job, isn't it? It's an extremely difficult job and it takes time. It takes time. You know, the parenting work that I did when I worked in domestic abuse took a long time because you have to, first of all, 
the adults are traumatized, you know, they've, they've also been frightened sometimes from birth, you know, they have also grown up with domestic abuse so that there's that intergenerational transmission, which we're all very keen to try and, um, you know, interrupt and, and, and stop that happening. So you're working with an adult who often is not very emotionally able themselves, so they can't put their own feelings into words. So it is a process where you have to encourage that in the adult. And often, um, you know, they need support maybe to access appropriate counselling so they can get their own emotional needs met because you're asking them to give something that they often haven't got. So um, getting emotional support themselves and encouraging, you know, I, I often would give simple games and tasks that they could do just to become to begin to become a more emotionally able family. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing process and it all has to focus on emotions. But as I say, you know, it's, it's a gentle process of walking beside the parent and um, encouraging them to build empathy with their children sometimes as well because their, their lived experience of parenting, they've not been allowed been able to allow themselves to empathize with their children otherwise they couldn't have stayed in an abusive relationship yeah. oh, understood Jane understood well now look um, obviously I'm looking forward to working with you and building this conference together which um, we're going to call I believe uh, in one of your phrases this is my childhood there will be no other and in March, I hope we can put something together that will actually not only help implement the UNICEF agenda, but also be a good forum and a good talk shop for professionals working with this age band and their families and um, get on with it. I really hope that we actually can, can put together a successful event because, I mean, listening to you, it's really stimulating. And I'm just delighted that you could have joined us today. So, Jane Evans, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. It was my pleasure. All right. I hope to talk to you again before the conference. Great. Thank you. Hello. Well, I was doing an interview for BBC Wales today, and it was all about the fellow Ian Watkins, who was the lead singer of the band The Lost Prophets, who's pleaded guilty to some horrific child abuse. And some of the more kind of uh, startling things that came out of it weren't the depths or the gravity of the abuse that he committed, which indeed was pretty bad, but the fact that he was assisted or um, by two women. And everybody immediately thinks, oh, well, no, th- these women uh, who apparently um, gave their children to him to be abused, um, they must have been under some kind of influence of, of this guy. He must have been a Svengali character or whatever. But actually, I don't think that was the case. I think they, were, they did it in full knowledge of what they were doing. And it made me have a look into the statistics in this country for um, women who abuse children sexually. And it's much, much higher the number than I even imagined, um, according to the experts in the field. So that's just something I want to have a think about in the future episodes and maybe talk to some experts about that. Probably even somebody from the Lucy Faithful Foundation uh, who specialise in working with abusers. But it's parents uh, and parenting and uh, all the assumptions that we make 
The vast majority of people with children in this country are very good parents. I don't think anybody's going to deny that. But there is a significant minority who either um, cause their children to be harmed or through a lack of knowledge omit various things in their care. But there also are some who just make assumptions. And a story came to my mind about some time ago in the uh, Bristol area in the southwest of England, where we are. A man put an advert in the paper that actually said, look, um, next Sunday I'm going to be in such and such a park and I'm going to be wearing a fluorescent yellow top. I'd like to start uh, an under-12s football team and I want to see if we can get into uh, a league. So come on along on Sunday for a couple of hours and let's see what we can do. Well, I believe about 14 children turned up to this man and um, they were on their way. They were dropped. Some were dropped off by parents, some just went there on their own. Now, a police officer who just happened to see the advert at the same time was curious. An alarm bell started ringing and he went along and right enough, his worries were founded because the man actually turned out to be somebody he knew who was a convicted paedophile. And this was just a perfect opportunity for him to groom these children and to get to know possible victims. And of course it was interrupted. But just think about this. Not one parent had actually went over to say hello or to check him out or to ask him who he was or what his background was. They just dropped off the children and left them. Now, if that advert had said, uh, I'm going to be in the park on Sunday wearing a fluorescent yellow top, I'll be at such and such a part of the park, bring along the keys to your cars, the more expensive ones, the better, perhaps uh, your Mercedes or your Jaguars or Land Rovers or 4x4s, whatever, and if you just leave your keys with me for a couple of hours, how's that? Well... <laughs> People would have, the emotions that that would have engendered in people would range from kind of outright uh, incredulity right through to probably quite a lot of anger in some people's parts, and they'd have probably even reported them to the police. So they wouldn't in any way have left their cars with them, but they left their children. And that, to my mind, sums up sometimes the attitude to parents or the lack of thinking sometimes, the assumptions that they make. We all made them as parents and in one form or another, but that was just a particularly acute example, I think, of that. Now, my own view is that child safety should be as much a part of family life as road safety. It's important and it should be talked about, but it doesn't need to be smothering, it doesn't need to be overwhelming, you don't have to necessarily be accused of wrapping up your children in cotton wool and not letting them out. We just should think about safety. Now, apart from the obvious, such as not letting your child be alone at the wrong time in the wrong place, you should always arrange trusted lifts for a responsible company. If you're a woman and a single parent with children and beginning a new relationship with a man, well, check them out. I mean, and after what I said at the beginning about women predators, I think obviously the message must go, if you're a single man with children as well and you start a new relationship with a woman, well, possibly you should check them out as well. You should check out men and women, if you can, that are making new relationships with. And 
there is a scheme in this country that you can do that through the police and they will run people through databases for you. It's best to be safe. And as long as you do it transparently and you tell them that that's what's happening, then that probably could make the relationship stronger if it's meant to be. Now, don't assume too much. You take your children along often to sports clubs, activity clubs, whatever. Now, nowadays, they are required to have a child protection person who's a designated person who the other staff or instructors, whatever, can go to for um, advice if they think that there's something amiss with a child. But parents often just don't, and they just often leave the children or sign them up for the club without actually going up to somebody, the head person or whoever, and actually saying, now, what's your child protection policy in this swimming club, football club, rugby club, cricket club, whatever club, or Boy Scouts, or um, Sea Scouts, or whoever, brownies, cubs, you name it, any activity for children where people leave their children with other adults. Just ask, what is the actual uh, policy of this particular club as far as child protection is concerned? Have you got a child protection policy? Have you got a designated person? Children, as we all know, if there is something wrong, will possibly go to somebody that they hold in high esteem and disclose to them. And often, more often than not, that's somebody at one of the clubs that they might go to. So whether it's a sports star that they hero worship, or whether it's a particular leader who they actually think is the safe, a safe person, they would go and tell them. And that person's got to be aware, got to be ready, and got to be knowledgeable about what to do with the information and how to deal with the information that that child actually tells them. Now, another matter that came to my attention was that homestays, you know, where children go away for a long time, uh, over the school trip, for example, and they swap, you know, a, a child in school a trip to Spain or to France will go and stay with a, a particular school and be allocated a parent and a child to, um, to chaperone them when they're over there. But rarely do any, does the school or do parents or whoever actually check out the parents or the families that the children are going to stay with. Very rarely at the still does that happen because it's just assumed that, oh, well, they're going to a school, then it must be all right. The parents are the ones looking after them. They've got children of their own, so it must be all right. Well, not true. Not true at all. A friend of mine, a senior police officer, some years ago now, but still, was given a, a grant to uh, go to various other forces around the world and check out their experiences of this homestay. And he came back to the UK with a thousand cases that he'd come across of varying degrees. And it was some just a question of bad food or lack of food or not very good sleeping arrangements, right through to definite abuse or definite grooming or a house that was so full of domestic violence, everybody was banging off the walls. So there was just a message that came out of that. And he actually maintained and started a particular charity called Child Safe, and that actually is still running today. But the message is just as strong as ever. Parents rarely check out 
um, where the child is actually going to stay if the school says it's okay. Now another thing is in this country we have foreign students coming and staying with families in this country. It doesn't have to be school trips, it could be language schools, it could be anything like that. They could be just over here for a period of time to improve their English. I've been phoned, many of my friends have been phoned at the last minute by people from placing agencies saying, oh, have you got a spare bedroom? We really need some extra space for this child. Uh, we, we, they're coming on Friday and, and the school trip and we've underestimated the number of places that we need and we're looking for host families. Have you got a spare bedroom? No. If I'd said yes, they'd have just turned up the next day. Nobody checked me out. Nobody has asked any questions of any real relevance. In fact, nobody even came to look at the room that this child would be staying in. But the parents make assumptions through the agencies who either through panic or through um, just ne neglect sometimes don't actually do the checks that's necessary. Let you think about this. If you were going abroad and leaving your dog or your cat somewhere, you'd go and check out the cattery or the kennels. You'd go and look at the conditions that your cat or your dog was going to be living in. But again, not your children. So the assumptions that go on is just so poignant that we've got to keep repeating it when we are talking to parents who would be leaving the children or who would be making arrangements for the children to go elsewhere or to stay elsewhere. So at the end of the day, I just think that um, the risk factor is so high that just a few extra questions is worth it. And if, and there are many people around that I totally understand are like this, if, for example, you're shy or you're a bit nervous about approaching the people in a sports club or whatever, talk to other parents and ask them and do it collectively. You know, get some group support. Anyway, I hope that works. I hope some people um, think about that because, to be honest, on the ground, operationally, we still hear some fairly worrying statistics of children that have actually been hurt or abused or neglected just because the right questions weren't asked by those that were caring for them. Anyway, as far as today is concerned, many thanks for listening. Uh, the socialworldpodcast.com will be back next week. You can tweet us at Dave Niven. You can sign up, please, if please do, for uh, to subscribe to the podcast or to subscribe to the newsletter on the website. I'm really pleased that you were listening and I hope you've enjoyed it. We are now embarking on a whole series of actually of media training within David Niven Associates. And so the numbers and the addresses and the various contact details will be on our website. So if you have been listening, thank you. See you next time.